We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome to another Money Matters podcast. I'm Laura Souter and joined as ever by Danny Houston. Hey, Danny. Hi, Laura. Hello, everyone. What a few weeks it has been because this podcast, of course, is all about your money. And Laura, we spend a lot of time looking at spreadsheets, tables, economic data, all the stuff I know you think is good stuff. Frankly, it gives me a headache most of the time. But we have had so much data and a lot of it has been bad news. Yes, it's not been particularly cheery data. And obviously, as part of our jobs, we have to go through this data like so many other people in the country um, to try and work out what it's showing for the UK economy. And, you know, that big question at the moment, when will interest rates be cut and how much will they be cut by is the big question that all of the finance nerds want to know, but also all of the people at home who have a mortgage, who have savings, who have debt. That's the big question that I'm sure, Danny, you're asked regularly by friends and family, as am I. Oh, regularly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A bunch of us mums are going on holiday in the summer. So we're sort of paying off bit by bit the lump sum in order to be able to go on the holiday. And it's become a bit of a talking shop generally about finance, which, of course, never used to do when you were talking to your mum pals. It all used to be about uh, kids and sex and, you know, that kind of thing. But now it's about money. And, yeah, when are interest rates going to be cut? That absolutely is the number one question that I am asked down the pub, you know, at the supermarket. People stop me and say, when are interest rates going to be cut? And oh, if I had a crystal ball, I could, you know, possibly make some money on that one. I know, we'd be much richer, wouldn't we? But anyway, um, but one of the latest uh, bits of data showed that the UK is now officially in recession. So I'm sure people will have seen all of the headlines from that recently. And that sounds pretty depressing. But actually, we're going to talk through some practical tips of how you can recession proof Uh, your finances, and also talk you through why this recession might be a little bit different to previous ones that might be giving you the fears. Um, And also on this podcast, we've got a brilliant inspirational guest, haven't we, Danny? Yeah, I've been chatting to the wonderful Lorraine Candy, former editor-in-chief of Elle and Cosmopolitan magazines, author of a very funny, very smart book on raising teenage daughters, and co-host of the excellent podcast Postcards from Midlife. Now, she was brilliantly honest about striving to find a work-life balance. Her surprise that most of the women that she's interviewed for jobs over the years never asked about money and about finding new purpose in her 50s. And I have to say that for a while, for me, particularly when I was in my 20s, Cosmo was my absolute Bible. Were you a magazine reader? Yes, I was. Um, And I don't really read them anymore. But yes, I would lap up the magazines all the way through from being like a, a, probably like a young teenager or even younger than that when you'd buy things like smash hits. And uh, I'm really dating myself here, aren't I? And um, (laughs) (laughs) just 17, all of those. So much nostalgia wrapped up in, in all of those magazines, definitely. See, my kids don't read magazines. So instead of 
you know, turning to Cosmo or L or, or, you know, just 17 or whatever, they go online. So they find what they call their aesthetic through sites like Pinterest and Instagram and, and YouTube, which is just so different. It just seems so wrong to someone that was brought up in the 80s. Yeah, it's such a different way of consuming media these days. But there'll always be something I think about a magazine in your hand, flicking through it on holiday. That is definitely my vibe. Oh, yes. Um, Funnily enough, one of my mum friends um, contacted me the other day because she wanted to know if any of us had those magazines anymore because she teaches kids and they wanted to cut them all up. So you can't do that (laughs) with social media. But the one thing it always did was it gave me real inspiration about the kind of clothes I wanted to be able to wear. I mean, it was really aspirational. And, you know, things like Cosmo, you were talking about handbags, which cost a fortune and I was never going to be able to afford. And yet I could dream for a while. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, all of that costs money, whether you're buying the designer handbag or the cheaper alternative. And that recession that we mentioned can put a bit of a crimp on people's spending plans. I thought it would be useful, Danny, for us to just talk through a bit about what a recession is, um, what it might mean for people's finances and how they can prepare. So let's start with the basics, Danny. Why don't you tell us what a recession is and, and what it actually means for us? Now, I've done this quite a few times over the last week, just trying to spell it out really simply for people. And in a nutshell, it effectively means that we've had two quarters or six months of negative growth. So it means the economy has effectively shrunk at the end of last year. And when we are in a recession, it usually means that there are less jobs around. There's less money circulating. You know, there's people spending less in shops, um, and there is less coming in in tax for a government as well. So, people start to lose confidence, and they decide that they're better off putting money back and saving. Employers are less likely to give people a pay rise, and. Also, banks tend to tighten their lending criteria as well. So, you know, it becomes more difficult to get things like mortgages. And I think for many of us, the last recession that we remember was the one following the pandemic. And that was a weird recession because it was really short. It only lasted six months, but it was really deep. And you're talking over 20% drop. This one is very different. A lot of people also might remember the recession following the financial crash. Again, that lasted quite a long time. It lasted just over a year, five quarters in total. Um, It wasn't as deep as the one that we had following the pandemic, but actually for many people, that's the one they remember. And when they think about a recession, it's that experience, the years of austerity that followed, the really difficult time that a lot of people had getting credit and just felt that maybe their lives had sort of stalled a little bit. And that generally tends to be what happens during a recession. But with this one, it already feels very different. First of all, there is an expectation that although we officially went into recession at the end of the year, that we're already on the way out. And I'll talk a bit more about those green shoots that we're seeing a little bit later on. 
But also it's because this is incredibly shallow. When we're talking about the economy shrank by 0.3% in the last three months of the year, and over the whole year, it shrank by 0.1%. So we're talking about a tiny amount. But because for the last couple of years, the economy really has been flatlining, it's been really sluggish. And of course, when we don't have that kind of growth, if the pie is not growing, then our slice of the pie doesn't get any bigger. And we all want a bigger slice of the pie, right? (laughs) I don't know if we're talking about money or actual pie by now, but I want both. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're so right, though. I think when people think of a recession, they think of that really deep recession post-financial crisis, and they are really thinking about that big crash. And I think that's a really important point to reassure people is that we're not expecting something on that scale now. So thanks so much for that very clear description that hopefully stops people feeling worried about, you know, having one of those periods where we lose um, so much time to a recession. Um, But I think now should we switch to some tips for people in terms of what they can do um, to help combat the effects of a recession, really? And to be honest, I think some of this stuff people will have done already as we've been battling a cost of living crisis. So actually, I think perhaps if we, I'm always a bit nervous about making predictions, but I think perhaps if we look back on this period, the cost of living crisis will have had a far bigger impact on people's finances than the recession that we are currently in. Um, And so some of these things are just things that people would have done over the cost of living crisis. But I still think it's worth going through because there's lots of things that you can do that will help you boost your budget um, and help you be kind of recession resilient. So the first thing is obviously cutting out any stuff from your budget that you can do without. So this is, you know, thinking about what you're spending um, and areas where you could cut back on. It might be bills that have crept up um, over the years that you think, actually, I could get a cheaper deal on that. Car insurance is one at the moment that is costing people so much money. And that's a case of shopping around and you could save a lot of money there. Or is about eliminating things um, that you don't need anymore. I mean, we've talked before on this about the endless number of streaming services that we seem to have adopted over our lives and whether (laughs) we actually need them. Um, I know, Danny, when we spoke before, you were talking about maybe secretly and slyly cutting the sky and seeing if your husband noticed. What did you decide to do? So we've reached a compromise on that. So I've ditched Disney, which the youngest daughter was not happy about, but we've still got Prime and we've still got Netflix. I mean, we were overloaded with subscription streaming services. And with Sky, we've kept it because he's got so much recorded on there, but we've ditched the movies package. So sometimes it's not about great big slices, but it's about getting rid of little bits because everything adds up really does over the year you might think oh that's a small sacrifice to make you know that's a small saving that I'm making each month but actually if you add that up over a year or even the two years of some of these contracts then it is definitely worth it so that is a good call to make and I think that leads us neatly on to the fact that it's a really good idea to have an emergency savings pot we've talked a bit about this before but this is a pot of money that you've got sitting in an easy access cash account that you can dip into if you um, hit some sort of crisis or emergency now that could be something like the car breaking down and needing an expensive fix or the boiler breaking is one I often use as a good example those things where 
it can end up costing quite a bit of money and it might not be money that you have to hand. Or if we're thinking more about a recession, it could be something like, you know, losing your job in the worst case scenario or seeing your hours cut back, for example, um, any of these kind of emergency things where you might need some money. Having a little pot of money set aside to help tide you through these times is so important and so useful to have, not just from a practical point of view, but from a peace of mind point of view that you know you've got a bit of money to fall back on. Now, I acknowledge that that is tough at the moment. People's budgets have been squeezed. But if we go back to your previous examples there, Danny, you know, cut out a couple of streaming services or part of a pricey Sky contract. And then if you immediately put that money into a savings account, then over a year that will build up and you'll have a small pot. And I think it's really about starting small. If you don't have loads of disposable income each month, starting small and building up from there. And you might actually find that, you know, once you've got into that savings habit, that provides a real boost and a motivation to to keep increasing it. Yeah. And that pot is massively important. And you're right, for some people, it's just so hard to try and save, particularly if you've got a lot of debt, which is still following you around. And I think it's really important before you start thinking about saving, and I'm not talking about an emergency pot, because having that pot just in case things go wrong and you desperately need to access it, things like losing your job, really important. But other types of saving, if the interest that you're going to be earning on that saving is less than the interest that you are being charged on your debt, then you can really make some some decent inroads into the amount of financial well-being that you have by paying off debt and Laura you've written some brilliant articles which are on our Money Matters website at AJ Bell Money Matters take a look on there and I really like when you talk about the different methods of cutting down debt and I know certainly I've got a credit card and the interest on my credit card now when I look at it it's just it's it's heading towards 20% and you just think Wowzers. And a lot of people might not have been aware that that sort of crept up. So if you can start paying it off, particularly that debt that has a really high interest rate, I think that's what you call the avalanche method, where you tackle the debt which has the highest interest rate first and try and bring that down. But if that's a huge chunk, then other people might like the snowball method, which I also like, which is smaller bits of debt that you have so that you can really see that you're making a difference because sometimes it is just about feeling that you're achieving something and if you can see those numbers start to come down if you can start to feel better financially then that can make a huge difference. Yeah exactly and I think it's really about whichever method you choose it's about coming up with a plan isn't it an achievable plan of how much you could pay off and how you could start chipping away at that debt but also if you know that it's going to be a long period until you can looking at switching to cheaper debt now that could be a cheaper credit card or it could be looking at other types of debt and and looking at whether that's cheaper so you know a zero percent overdraft for example um or you know a loan that might be cheaper than the credit card it's really about hunting around and making sure that you're paying the lowest interest possible or no interest if that is possible so another good way is to boost your income so 
look at those kind of we often call them side hustles and we've actually got a whole podcast on side hustles and how to kind of generate income from them and make them a success so it could be that you you know adopt a side hustle that makes you some extra money on the side or it could be that you just make money from things like selling old clothes or electricals or you know things that you've got lying around your house that you keep thinking oh, I need to declutter and sell get them on eBay get them on Vinted um, and make some extra money that way um, so really about kind of boosting your income that you've got coming in and then if you can divert that money into boosting your emergency savings pot for example or your savings then that's great but obviously if you need to use it for things like debt or just you know, for your monthly um, expenditure, then you can use it for that too. And when you're talking about side hustles as well, you can also think about if you're employed, how you can potentially get that pay rise, get that promotion. And if you can take advantage of any training that is available at the moment, then do so. Try and make your CV look as shiny as possible also, because if in the unfortunate eventuality that you know you do lose your job, if you've got a CV which is up to date, ready to go, it'll just take that really difficult thing out of your to-do list at a time when you might be feeling really vulnerable. So yeah, grab on to any opportunities to upskill that you can make yourself the best that you can be really invest in yourself and I think we've had lots of guests really sort of saying that on this podcast invest in yourself it's great advice I think really good for people to kind of bear in mind and think about particularly if we're going to be in a slightly more rocky jobs environment Um, and I think the other way that you can boost your income is to just make sure that you're claiming any support that you're entitled to so there's so much in the way of kind of government support Um, and benefits that just go unclaimed because people aren't aware that they're eligible for them or how to claim them. So we're talking things like if you've got kids, child benefit or some of the various support for childcare, whether that's free hours or tax-free childcare, or if you're in a married couple claiming something like marriage allowance, um, making sure that you're claiming all of these things. Or, you know, if you think you might be entitled to some other benefits, universal credit or other benefits like that, then working out whether you might be or speaking to someone like Systems Advice who will be able to do a really good run through um, and work out if there's things that you you could be claiming. And we've actually got lots of articles on this on the Money Matters website, um, just, you know, highlighting some of these things that you might be able to claim that you might not be aware that you're eligible for. So definitely check that out. But that's a great way of just claiming money that you're entitled to that, that you won't be getting right now. And you mentioned car insurance earlier. And last year, I did the absolute worst possible thing that you could do. I meant to take a look at my car insurance and it just automatically renewed. And yeah, it went up. This year. Oh, Daniel, this pains me. You should have prepared me for that confession. <laughs> but it's okay. I've done better this year because I spotted that my car insurance was, was going to go up by £20 a month which is massive considering I've been driving, you know, for a very long time. So I managed to switch onto a a dual car insurance multi-car because obviously my husband as well is insured. So I managed to save that way. So I always feel bad for single people when we talk about this because there are so many ways, which as a couple, you can save money, which just don't apply to single people. But 
don't let things just renew you know your broadband your house insurance your mobile phone contract you might just be able to get it cheaper if you shop around and you know i don't know about you but you start to get those letters through i've just had one through for my broadband provider saying your broadband is going up by cpi the headline inflation rate plus 3.9 percent and that's going to be an extra five or six pounds a month but then my phone's going up my council tax is going up everything is going up some things you just can't change your council tax unless you move house but things like broadband streaming all of those things shop around yeah and i think one really good tip is to it can feel like quite a lot to try and tackle that all in one go but actually i think set yourself a task a week is a great tip so you know rather than thinking I'm going to sort out all of my finances all in one go, that's a bit unattainable. And let's be honest, we're going to get bored of doing all of the paperwork (laughs) after not very long. So (laughs) instead think, okay, this week I need to sort out my home insurance or I need to check how much my broadband is and whether I could get a cheaper deal. Um, My task this week actually is to check that mobile phone contract. You've really reminded me because I think mine is coming up for renewal soon. and I definitely don't want to be paying over the odds for that. So a handy reminder. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> and gas and electric too, because of course we've just had the announcement about the price cap. Hooray, something is coming down in price. But it has been so long since we've spoken about switching suppliers to get a better deal, because of course the price cap has been pretty much the best option out there for most people. But now... If you can find something where it's going to bring the amount that you pay for your gas and electric, dual fuel, whatever, by around 17%, it could be worth doing. And I certainly know that Eon offers an option where it's 3% below the price cap. So it is worth taking a look now to find out whether or not any deals out there might be better for you than what you'd be paying over the next 12 months on the price cap. And I think probably the final thing to say on this kind of getting yourself recession ready is to really think long and hard before you ditch any long term investments. So people out there who've got investments in place, it's really important to try and not touch those and let them grow for the future. It can be quite tempting, I think, when we're in a bit of a um, budget crunch situation to think, oh, I'll just dip into a bit of that money. And that is totally fine and what it's there for if you need to. But I think it's really about thinking about making your finances as slick as possible before you go into touching that money, because we know that that money is there set aside for either a particular purpose in the future or just for your future. And so you really want to try and avoid touching that money if you can, although, of course, if you need to, it's there. And we're going to end on a note of positivity, because, as I mentioned earlier, there are green shoots already. The governor of the Bank of England has said that he is pretty confident that the UK is already out of recession. So we're always looking backwards. So the figures that we got took us to the end of last year. We won't get that title until May if we're out of recession, because it will take several months, we need a full three months of growth to be able to be out of that. But we have had an awful lot of data in the past couple of weeks, which have looked better. People have been spending a bit more in terms of retail sales. Businesses are saying that they're seeing things pick up, they're feeling more confident. So 
it does look like we might be in and out of recession in a blink. Well, that is cheery news and I like it. <laughs> so now it's time for our special guest. So Lorraine Candy has had an extraordinary career and she is definitely not done yet. She's edited Elle, Cosmo and the Sunday Times style section. She's been a columnist sharing tips on parenting and has also written a book about her experiences called Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only the Mother of Girls Know. She co-hosts a hugely popular podcast called Postcards from Midlife and she's also an ambassador for the charity Women in Sport. She is a busy lady. She is a busy lady and there was so much to talk about and of course a limited amount of time but she juggled us into her busy schedule to share some tips that she's learned along the way. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us. You are absolutely no strangers to podcasts so this is going to be a total breeze for you. Um, I wanted to start talking about kids because You've got three daughters and a son. You have lived through the teenage years, still going through it, a bit of it. I'm certainly still going through it at the moment. You've written a brilliant book about it. How did you juggle it all? How do you juggle it all? I think, firstly, thank you for having me on. Um, really, I think I need to say is it's never a one-man job or a one-woman job, one-person job. It's a team, isn't it? You know, my uh, work were very helpful, my colleagues at work, because we altered uh, some of our printing processes and production processes to meet the needs of me having to come home and do things that I need to do when I was uh, editor-in-chief at L and Sunday Times Style and Cosmopolitan magazine. Uh, also, my husband has been very engaged and involved. We always uh, have a 50-50 arrangement, as much as it can be, I think, for my generation. I still think, <laughs> you know, the women of Gen X hold the emotional labor much more so than the men. We did expect them to step up, and they didn't quite step up. <laughs> um, but, you know, having a conversation, we had a conversation before each child on what, what would change, how it would change, what the process would be, what the logistics would be, who would pick up what, who would do. I think you have to be really specific about those things. And it's a mistake. We didn't do it the first time, but we kind of learned by the second and third time. And I think, you know, it's all about asking for help as well, isn't it? And knowing that, you know, you may drop the ball and that it is a blend more than a juggle, really. It's a blend of everything. And obviously, my children are always more important than anything else. And so, you know, that is the priority. And then you work down from that. I've been quite logical about it, I think. But, you know, obviously, I've missed things but then I kind of you know I always had those moments I used to go away twice a year for the fashion show so I would be gone four weeks in uh, February and four weeks in September on and off in and out um, and I'd think oh well I've missed you know my my um, husband would send me a picture and say oh she's walking or she's doing I think I'd missed it but then I had friends who say you know I was in the toilet when that happened so it's not really <laughs> you know we apply an emotion we overlay an emotional meaning around everything I think as women because we've been told really that we by society in a kind of subliminal way that we should be there and no one can be there all the time so and your children only know what they know so I guess long boring answer but that's how I've done it and very you know with people with logic and planning and you know you drop the ball sometimes and that that just is. Guilt comes as standard I think from the minute that you have that baby in your arms as a mum particularly when you're a Gen X mum because that's how you were brought up but what really interested me was you saying there that your work got it 
they engaged with you and they supported you, which for a lot of women at that time just wasn't the case. Well, I think I should caveat that with the fact that I wouldn't have done it if they hadn't worked with me. So um, on the occasions that... um, when I worked at Cosmopolitan, when I was editor-in-chief, they didn't get it. It was really ironic. And actually, some of the issues I faced made headlines at the time because the editor of Cosmopolitan struggling to have her first baby and being asked to come back to work early, which happened and, uh, you know, was a big news story. And, uh, you know, there was that was a time when people didn't really understand what women needed. And I was always very specific. When I went to Hearst to work on L. I was very specific before I took the job on what I would need. So it was either this is what I need and this is what I will do in return and these are the metrics you can measure me by. If I don't meet them, then this arrangement is obviously clearly not going to work for you as a business and it's not going to work for me um, as, a, as a mother, as well, you know, mother working outside of the home. So they worked because I was very specific about it, and it was a sort of I won't come unless this is how it this is how it is. <laughs> um, and then what I found is, you know, you can't. I managed um, around forty people in each job, mostly women, and you can't always say yes to things uh, as well. You know, you as a business, sometimes you can't say yes to women uh, when they come back from maternity leave for some of the requests that they need because it simply won't work as a business and you won't be happy, they won't be happy and the business won't deliver. So it's really about working out how you can do it and being open and listening. I was really specific that it all went in a contract so that none of this was just verbally agreed, so that it was in a contract. So if other women asked, there was a precedent that had been set that would make it uh, relevant for them to ask. And I was very verbal about it within my office as well. And, you know, as I say, sometimes I had to say no to requests from women who wanted to spend more time because it wouldn't have worked for the business. Sometimes I was able to say yes, there were lots of job shares, but it was about listening, really. It's about listening to women. And I think what was good about where I worked was people listened to me. But then I was very valuable to the business. So, you know, editor-in-chiefs at the time were bringing in, managing massive million pound plus budgets. So it made sense if I could deliver that and get what I needed as as a mother, as a parent, you know, as a family, then it made sense to make that work. And, you know, it was always put into action with very specific metrics around it. So in three months, if it hadn't worked, if we hadn't met our, if our P&L was in any way affected, if we weren't delivering on circulation, if I was dropping the ball editorially, then obviously that would all be reviewed. And I think that's a logical way to do it. I'm not saying it was easy and you've certainly got to be quite brave, I think, to go in and ask for those things. And I think maybe I was uh, among the first women to do that. Um, but, you know, I was working in a creative industry that was predominantly women. I wasn't on the front line of the NHS. I wasn't in the military. I wasn't in the places where it would have been a darn sight more difficult to ask for that as a woman. And as a mum now of girls, having role models, you must understand more than most the importance of role models like you, of women like you blazing that trail in the workplace. I do think it's good to have these role models to see what is possible. But I also think we have to be really careful. And I've done so much research around 
mental health and young women, we have to be really careful not to set it up that these very powerful women who work in a specific way are the only way to do it and they are the measure of success. You know, some teenage girls really, really struggle. So looking at a woman who's done what I did, left school at 16, no qualifications, I'm a very specific personality type. That's not going to work for every. So I wouldn't want teenage girls to think, you know, these women who've battled their way to the top and success is their marker, that's the way to do it. Therefore, they aren't doing it right, or that's the only way to do it. You know, there is a softer quality that is prized as well, I think, within the workplace. And I've worked with lots of amazing women who haven't wanted to have the big leadership roles, but have wanted to be really happy in the roles that they do. And sometimes we miss that when we're talking to um, young women. I think what what is helpful is if young women can see where they are listened to and find their voice. There was a really great, I pulled it out actually before the interviews, a really great book by a woman called Marissa Porges, who used to work in the Obama uh, administration. She worked in counterterrorism. And it's about what girls need and how they find their voice. She's done a lot of research. And it's really, I think books like that are great for parents to read because you start to look at your teenage girls in a different way because they're all different. They all want different things. They all want to do and live their lives in a different way. And their mental health is very fragile until they're about 25. That's when the, neurologically the brain sort of stops being built and, and your identity starts being more settled. So I think it's great to have these really powerful, and I've talked to um, Helena about this as well, actually. It's great to have these really powerful role models that do amazing things and are at the top of their game. But it's also really good to look at the women who don't want to do that, but are very happy in their job and have a lovely life outside of it and have a creative process doing other things and work in a different way. So as long as the role models are balanced across all the industries, I think that's what's important. I know I've certainly spoken to Helena about the whole sort of superwoman thing, about the yeah. idea that you can have it all. And I remember starting out and thinking, right, well, I want the career and I want the kids and I want the home and I want, you know, a decent standard of living. But actually there does get to be certain points in your life when you just think, is it worth it? Did you ever have those points when it's just like too many balls? I think what I underestimated and perhaps lots of women do is the emotional labour around uh, having a family and having a full-time out-of-the-home job working outside of the house. There is a lot of thinking. And even if you can afford great childcare and delegate a lot of the practical stuff, you've still got to think about the delegation of that. You've still got to be incredibly emotionally involved. And, you know, parenting, as we know, is incredibly unpredictable. So you just don't know what's going to happen. So you're on a sort of roller coaster all the time of, you know, being as happy as your happiest child and as sad as your saddest child. And when you have four quite, you know, I had four over 10 years, and then the first two were very close in age. It is a bit, you do have to sort of take those moments and think, is this worth it? how is it going to work if I can't deal with this? You know, am I being my best parent in this situation because of the huge amount of stress I'm dealing with at work? But what I would say is you have to be super mindful of the women around you because they will relieve you of that stress if they're good women. <laughs> so, you know, I've had the most amazing deputies on the magazines I've worked with on. And wherever I've worked, I've often found groups of women who've been able to help me and relieve me of some of the stress. And I've done that in turn for them. So I think it's just been really logical about your your needs and you know as I say I was doing a job that was fun, incredibly fun and super creative they were you know you are only ever employed as long as you're selling a certain number of copies and making a certain amount of money so there is a kind of 
football manager type pressure on you daily as there is in finance but um you know and it just drops one month and then all hell breaks loose and you have to get those numbers back up so there is that stress but I think you know in the moments of great stress you just have to say who around me could help me and what do I need at home and how do I just move forward I have to say in perimenopause when I went through perimenopause that did all fall apart because I wasn't ready for what I was about to experience physically at that time. The whole logic was impossible for me at that point. And I was utterly overwhelmed until I went on HRT. And then I was better again and got my sleep back. So it does depend. You've got to have, you've got to have slept well, you've got to be healthy, you've got to have the right people. Yeah, but that's life in general, isn't it? You know, we just, it's constant change. And that's what we're dealing with all the times. We just have to get used to that. And dealing with teenage hormones at the time when you're dealing with your own hormones, you've written a book about being the mum of teenage girls. What's the hardest lesson that you've learned? The reason I wrote the book, I had a column in um, a paper for many years around parenting and I spoke. was very lucky to be a journalist and able to speak to all the new experts, all, see all the latest research before it came out. So I kind of thought I was prepared and I knew, you know, I t- we had the first generation of teenagers, my eldest is 21, uh, with smartphones. So I kind of was ready with that. I'd done a lot of work around it, a lot of thought around it. But, but what I wasn't prepared for was the complete rejection um, of the mother <laughs> by the teenage <laughs> girl. It was really... My book's not about deep trauma or, you know, it's not the book to buy if your daughter's going through eating disorders or any extreme mental health. It's the book about why they never want to be touched anymore, why they won't let you hug them, why they won't talk to you in a pleasant way sometimes, why they go through the most enormous emotional roller coaster and then just sort of hand it all to you to deal with emotionally, why they're so mean to you, you know. <laughs> um, I hate to generalise because I don't think... You know, I have three girls and a boy. They're sort of 12, 17, 20, and 21. I don't think it's a gender thing. I think it's just just teenagers generally. The rejection is so huge. I mean, it it came as an enormous shock to me. There is a very specific dynamic with teenage girls and mums because they've been – you're their closest female role model, so they are absorbing what you're doing from the day they are born. So they do know you so intimately – when they want to test all their emotions, oh, what makes people upset? I wonder if this makes people upset. I'll test it out on mum because she's least likely to reject me. She loves me the most. Anything I do is going to be okay with her. So I will test it on her. That kind of, you know, that was a real shock to me, I think. And I felt such a failure. You know, it triggered every bit of me that felt like I wasn't achieving, which, you know, is my own issues and um, my own childhood, no doubt. But I was perplexed by it. So I thought, I'll just dig around and find out what I can do in these situations. And I'm sure other mums would benefit from a book about it. Well, I have to say, as someone right in the thick of it at the moment, I've got a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. And just reading some of your words and knowing that you went through exactly what I'm going through and it's not an aberration, it is okay and it does change constantly. And my eldest now has gone through the doesn't want to be touched, won't be hugged stage. But you've shared so much over the years. You've been incredibly frank. Why? You mean in terms of personal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't shared 
great detail. I mean, the book is, there's lots and lots of examples, but I don't really share too much of my own children. I mean, this is a bit of a myth, actually. And people say, oh, you put all your children on Instagram. There are no pictures of my children on Instagram. There never have been. There have never been any of my, I think there have been three pictures of my kids in the papers over the years. So I've shared what I've experienced as a mum while trying to protect their privacy. I feel kind of earlier on I didn't protect it as well as I could, but I think later on I've been really protective of it. I haven't, you know, it's out of time. It's often not, uh, I've interviewed so many teenagers and so many mums, so it's all always an amalgamation. It's always real things that have happened. Um, I've shared a lot personally, but I think that's because I was the editor of a woman's magazine. So my natural default is to help women to give out advice. So when you edit Cosmopolitan, I worked on Marie Claire. I've worked on all the magazines, really, apart from Vogue. So from my point of view, my nature as a journalist is to share information with other women. That's that's kind of the specialist area that I'm in. So, you know, also when we started the, our podcast, Postcards from Midlife, uh, Trish Halpin, who used to edit Marie Claire and Red and InStyle, and we co-hosted together, we realised we had to share what we'd been through with perimenopause because it would have been hugely unfair for two women who'd edited most of the big glosses with a huge community of Gen X women behind them not to share it. <laughs> so I've shared it because I think it's useful and helpful, and that's literally my job. I'm trained to give advice as a journalist. I, As a journalist, I get access to all the experts. I'm trained to interview them well, and I'm trained to edit it so quickly and smartly so that people can take that information. So it's not really an altruistic thing. It's just that's my actual job. That's what I'm interested in. I like to find out new things. You know, there's, we didn't know until the last sort of three or four years that the teenage brain developed right up until the age of 25. We had no idea what, how, we still don't know actually how smartphones and the internet is going to be affecting neurology. There's still no smoking gun around all of that at the moment. So I'm I, that's my training to find out about it and relay it as information. So that that's why really. And you're also sharing and educating your daughters as well. This is obviously a financial podcast and what kind of advice have you given them about being financially resilient, about making those decisions which will give them a solid foundation on which to build? Because money is still massively important. I think the most shocking thing with women and money, and I've, I just, you can look at what well, I'm sure you've covered this on the podcast, all the research. You know, we are, the gap between us and men is so huge in terms of earning power, pension power, savings. It's, it's, it's not getting smaller, it's getting bigger. <laughs> so it's really shocking that in a, this patriarchal setup that we all live in that doesn't really benefit any of us properly, has makes it financially worse for women. So knowing that context and having seen the research and, you know, you can, quote all of the facts and figures, I was very w aware with my daughters that they should be engaged and involved and know about money. I mean, I've been quite lucky. My two eldest are, maths is their thing. That's what they did at school. My eldest is um, studying mechanical, chemical engineering, uh, mechanical electrical engineering at university. And my 20-year-old uh, is an A-star math student. So that they were not frightened of numbers. <laughs> I'm terrified of numbers. I have no qualifications <laughs> whatsoever. So I wasn't involved financially. And at times when I've had to talk about money, I found it very difficult. It hasn't been the driving force in my career. So I've always had to take advice on, on that. And when I've ever talked about money at work, I've gone in with a script because I'm so 
fearful of talking about it and I didn't want them to be fearful of talking about it. So I've always said to them, you need to know everything about your own finances, earn your own money, manage your own money. We've been very specific about them uh, with them. You know, my husband and I come from a very different background from our children. <laughs> so, you know, I've been really specific about that with them. I started earning a salary at 16 and have never had any financial input from my parents. I grew up in a small Cornish town, so on a, you know, big estate in the middle of nowhere. So from my point of view, my financial growth has been a learning curve, but I've really been very reluctant to be engaged in it. I haven't wanted them to do that. So we got them go Henry cards, all of the things. We got them involved in finance. They all, I mean, my eldest is a Martin Lewis super fan. Um, they, they are really engaged and involved in it. And I think you really have to get your daughters particularly to find their voice around money because I've interviewed men and women for jobs uh, in the past. And I've worked both in newspapers and um, on magazines and women never ask they never ask for a salary none of the women I interviewed have ever asked for what they want they've had a standard it's not a lot more than what they're already earning and they've clearly found it quite difficult to talk about it every man I've interviewed is almost the first thing they say this is what I expect <laughs> this is what I want to earn this is how I want to earn it so I think from that point of view I just don't want women to be in this is the creative industry so I'm only talking about publishing I don't know how it is in other industries. I just would never want my daughters to be in a position where they couldn't say, this is what I think I'm worth at work. It is so hard. And I think the cost of living crisis seems to have changed the way that we talk about money. I mean, a couple of years ago when we launched Money Matters, it was still a massively taboo subject. Now it seems you go on social media, and in fact, I, I was Googling and um, on TikTok at the moment, um, recession-proofing your finances is, is one of the sort of most popular hashtags. It has changed, and yet there is still a part of a lot of women that are quite happy to talk about sex, they're quite happy to talk about family, but they're not happy to talk about money. Is that something you've found as well? Absolutely. We've interviewed, we do cover this subject quite frequently on Postcards from Midlife because what we found, we have a private Facebook community alongside the Postcards podcast. And in that community, we are almost consistently asked by women going through divorce, it's the highest rate of divorce after the age of 45. Um, I don't know where the money is. I don't know what I'm worth. I don't know what I could be worth. And it is the key. We've had lawyers, um, divorce lawyers on on the show giving advice as well. And the key thing is, you need to know what, what your money, where your money is. It's the first thing you've got to sort out if you're going through any separation. And and women just are really reluctant to do that. And I'm never, I'm consistently surprised by the number of women who just haven't asked or who just are not engaged in the family finances beyond, you know, rather depressingly, the food shopping, uh, booking the holidays and um, sorting out anything domestically. They don't seem to be engaged in savings, pensions, salaries, and, and you know all of that kind of thing that they should be more engaged in. This is the generation I'm talking, uh, my generation, Gen X, that I'm talking about. I think it's different from millennials. Um, and I think it's uh, definitely dis- different from what my daughters say around Gen Z. They, they really are much more aware because it's much more difficult for them. But I do wish that 
women would find their voice around money. But again, we've just all got to talk about it a lot more, haven't we, really, rather than, you know, whisper it or keep it on our WhatsApp groups. No, you're absolutely right. And if you could give one bit of advice to women listening to this, whether they're starting out, whether they're in midlife, wherever they are in their life, what would that bit of advice be? I think around money, women really need to have it down in front of them. They have to have everything logged. They have to logically work out what they're earning, what they've got saved, you know, what's the three months. We had a financial advisor on the show who said most women need a sort of three-month cushion um, if they're going to be living on their own or divorcing or separating or looking after family. They've got to have that money somewhere. What are their assets worth? You just need to write it all down. I think sometimes we can put our head in the sand and think, you know, I just don't need to deal with that because I am dealing with so much else. I'm completely overwhelmed and I've got everything else to deal with. So you are, but this is perhaps more important than some of the other things. So stop, work out what you're going to stop dealing with and turn your attention to the finances because it's, it's freedom in a way, I think. It's not about, you know, being rich or buying luxury things. And there's just such a sort of patriarchal attitude around what women and I know that coming out of the fashion world what women spend money on they should perhaps feel a bit guilty about or all the headlines around you know how much handbags are worth but no headlines around how ridiculous amounts of money spent on cars and gadgets you know it's this and I've worked in newspapers where that's just you know we've been made fun of as a team on a fashion magazine part of the newspaper whereas the car part of the newspaper it's all right to have all those headlines and all that money but this lot these women are spending this money on bags and things like everything that appreciates in value and is actually worth investing in <laughs> it's just that consistent attitude so just know your money and know the value of the stuff and have it written down i think that's the only way the dreaded spreadsheet Lorraine Candy there and you can find Lorraine on social media and the podcast she co-hosts with Trish Halpin you can find that wherever you found this one plus her book mum what's wrong with you is available from all good booksellers but she was really brilliantly honest wasn't she Danny but I do have to ask did you manage to squeeze a confession out of her? I did you'll be glad to know she was a great sport and her confession is one that many people especially those who started their own business will understand very well. Well, I think I think my money confession has been <laughs> my husband's going to kick well apart from the time I had all our um <laughs> pass numbers on a post-it note in my purse which no one should ever have on the back of their credit card because I'm terrible at remembering numbers I'm a little bit numerically dyslexic so they move around when I write them down <laughs> so it's real unless they're actually written still I mean, it's really quite difficult for me so um but I think we set up a business when we set up postcards from midlife Trish and I and um I have to say for a, quite a long time, for maybe the first year, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. <laughs> and um, Trish was kind of managing it with me. And I, I I, just had no idea. And I just couldn't work out what was coming in, what was going out. I just couldn't. And I had to really get, take myself on a walk one Saturday morning. I took myself on a walk and I, I said, right, you need to get your head around this. This is not salary anymore. This is setting up a business. You need to have a business plan. And I talked to lots of friends who'd set up businesses and they'd said, you don't, you don't need to see an expert. You don't need to hire someone. You don't need an accountant. You just need to do it yourself and get your head around it. 
And uh, that was what I learned at the age of um, 52. <laughs> it seems so obvious, but I just don't think many people do it. <laughs> numbers, numbers, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're preaching to the choir. Um, I had to really sort of change my mindset uh, as I got older and I started focusing on business and finance because it had just been not been my world. Um, but yeah, numbers, not scary, really. Not not scary. And you don't need an expert to come in and do it for you. You need you to set your goals down, look at the figures work out what's worth spending money on, what's not, what's worth doing, what's not, value yourself as a resource, price yourself into the market as a business. It's just, it's an easy thing to do. And I say that as a woman who left school at 16 with no qualifications and, you know, I can barely add up. So I just got my head around it and actually have found that women are actually quite good at getting their head around stuff. I think that is such a common one, isn't it? I know people who um, run their own businesses and it's you're really good at the thing that your business is based around, but you're not necessarily automatically good at the finance side and the accounting side of everything. So I think that's such a common one among self-employed people or small business owners. It can be incredibly overwhelming and I take my hats off to people because every year when I have to deal with a self-assessment tax form, break out in a cold sweat so you have to do that for an entire business not just you know dealing with the fact that you've got a child um oh what is it called that you get child allowance child benefit child benefits there we go <laughs> you see motherhood it, it rots the brain <laughs> We have got for you next time a very special International Women's Day episode heading your way. Keep an eye out for that. We're also asking you to send in your financial questions for a podcast in a few weeks' time with the brilliant financial advisor, Jane Gow, from Clear Cut Financial Planning. So drop us an email, hello at ajbellmoneymatters.co.uk. Or you can visit the AJ Bell Money Matters website and sign up to our newsletter. We will send you more details of every podcast, article and special event that we've got in the works, including a discount code for tickets to a fantastic conference being held in Manchester in April called Anything is Possible. So it's a full day event with tips on health, home, career and, of course, money and money matters will be there. So definitely sign up to the newsletter to get that and all of the other stuff that we're working on. And hopefully we'll see you at that event. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.